Hey everyone, grace and peace to you all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is Tuesday, June 2nd. And this week we are in a conversation all week long on how um, emotionally healthy spirituality um, collides, blends, and mixes with uh, race, uh, injustice, racial inequality, racial reconciliation, the, ra- the, the whole race conversation in light of everything going on in our, in, our, in our nation right now, which seems to be at like a tipping point, a flashpoint. Um, there's a lot of things that we're, that we're talking about on social media, on Facebook, on, with friends around this. It's, if you're doing social distant um, walks with a friend, this comes up. And today on the podcast, we have with us Moses and Tracy. Tracy and Moses are both part of our race and belonging cohort, members of our church for a while. And today we want to talk about how do we talk about race with other people? People that either A, don't want to have the conversation or people that do want to have the conversation uh, in community groups, one-on-one. How do, we even, how do we even begin to talk about this? A lot of people are just so paralyzed of saying the wrong thing, afraid of saying the wrong thing, afraid of like having the wrong perspective or the wrong whatever, that they just paralyzes them. They don't want to have a conversation. So today we want to talk about how do we have this conversation? So first of all, hello, Tracy. Hello, Moses. Hi there. Hello. Um, Tell us about yourself. Let's start there. Tell us about yourself. So I am a Bay Area native. I grew up in Sunnyvale, which is down in the South Bay. And I've been coming to reality since 2017 part of the Coal Valley community group, CVCG1, what's up? (laughs) And I identify as a Korean American. So my parents immigrated to the States uh, from Korea. And so I guess I'd be considered maybe like a 1.5 generation. (laughs) Nice. Um, Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, So uh, I'm Moses. I'm originally from Washington, D.C. I've been in the Bay for about seven years now. I'm also uh, a first-generation American. Uh, my parents are Nigerian immigrants, and um, yeah, I think I, I think that the Christian faith can be a bit complex for people of color. I think there's this duality where, on one hand, you know, the reason I decided to follow Christ is that number one, just um, you know, having the pleasure of, of 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 having such an authentic and objectively good experience around how. Our faith at its essence is based on uh, justice and restoration and, Mm -hmm. you know, being multicultural in the truest sense of the word. Mm -hmm. But um, sort of on the other hand, you just have to acknowledge that, you know, our faith has been a very effective tool to marginalize and subjugate and colonize people that look like me. Mm -hmm. And so I know me personally, I sort of walk around with these two opposing ideas in my head all of the time. And I think, um, you know, environments like the ones that we're currently in um, really do sort of force us to um, sort of focus on those two thoughts. Hmm. Our nation is like in this really heavy place right now. We're balancing all things COVID and the current climate around race. You know, people are experiencing a variety of emotions, including fatigue and anger and Fear, frustration, just to name a few. Our, our, our leadership thinks it's important. This conversation is an important one for each of us to have. So how do we have these conversations about race and injustice with friends and family, community, etc.? How do you lay the groundwork and structure for this? Do people need to do homework or something? And what practices have been helpful 
as you facilitate these conversations in the past? I know there's, there's a lot of questions, but just dive in. So I think um, the following framework that I'm about to dive into is going to be more focused for people who are part of the dominant culture, who are in a position to learn from the oppressed or marginalized groups. Mm. Um, so I think to start off, we need to approach these types of conversations with the utmost humility, especially if we do not identify with this oppressed or marginalized community. Mm. And I think we need to also remember that it's that not everyone is in the same place as you in your yeah, kind right. of anti-racism journey. Um, and we just need to understand that people are affected differently, they process differently. Um, so just to give space for that. Mm -hmm. And speaking of space, I think it's important to create a safe space when having these types of conversations that encourages openness and honest dialogue and opportunity for everybody to be heard. Mm -hmm. I think what also can be really helpful is to um, ground the conversation with kind of a, a single probably shared goal or purpose. And it can be as simple as, hey, we're all here to just learn and grow from one another. And then depending on the situation, I think it sometimes can be helpful to frame the conversation with some guidelines, so ground rules. So let's say you're in your community group and before you dive into a conversation to set rules such as, hey, we're going to speak and just share from our own personal experiences and emotions. Um, we're also going to acknowledge that lived experiences are valid, even if we may not agree or understand. Uh, we're not going to try to correct or challenge or fix somebody else based on their story or emotions or experiences, but instead we're going to take a position of being an active listener and to respond with gratitude. Mm. And then I think it's also important to just be okay sitting in discomfort and feeling challenged and even maybe feeling discouraged um, in that conversation. And speaking of homework, I think it's also important outside of these conversations to also just be proactive in educating yourself, um, to take it upon yourself to research, learn, and seek out people, resources, um, other types of ways to gain a deeper understanding of systemic racism, oppression, and injustice. Um, so we, as, as part of the um, Race and Belonging cohort during the Race and Gospel series last year helped curate a collection of resources that's available to our community. So I think that's a really great place mm -hmm. to start if you're looking for resources. Uh, personally, I think what's been helpful for me when facilitating these types of conversations is to just practice how to ask open and curious questions, because I think those types of questions convey that I'm here to learn and understand rather than to judge or shame. Um, and finally, I think just practicing and showing just, uh, just complete kindness and extra grace when having these types of really sensitive and challenging conversations. Um, and just wanted to also note, this framework could also be helpful for conversations between marginalized or minority groups, for example, between Asian and black communities or between black and Latinx communities. I think just the main takeaway is that learning is an important aspect of having these conversations, to be open to hearing and sharing about each other's respective stories of suffering and injustice, and to find support among our common kind of struggles and pains, rather than entering what I think our friend Janet Ickpa likes to call the oppression Olympics. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I love that. And I think this is where emotionally healthy relationships merge with this conversation. I don't think you can actually have and move into the race conversation well without being with some emotionally healthy relationship tools like listening well. 
and setting good ground rules and expectations, that sort of things. If you go in to a conversation, I'm expecting to win this argument and you to be shamed and like grovel at my feet saying how wrong you are. If you go in with that expectation, you're going to fail every single time. Absolutely. Like setting expectations, right? right? Like expectations is to have an open and honest dialogue, to set really important ground rules, to listen well, to honor each other where they're at in their journey. If you do that, we, you actually move people closer uh, to the closer to like where you're at. You actually kind of merge and come together and you can meet in the middle and then move someone from there. So, you know, at times the conversation sometimes though doesn't go as anticipated like it doesn't happen like the way you want to how do you hold expectations and disappointment and hurt especially when you're experiencing this form of this this from like family and friends and community members or even church leadership i know there's people listen that don't go to reality like or even people at reality that like don't i want you to do more or whatever how, how do you do that and 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 all of this in response to you know issues of injustice like, how have you done this personally? Yeah, so, I mean, Dave, I love what you said about, you know, putting into practice principles from the emotionally healthy church. And I would say what I've done in the past is, number one, I mean, these are very emotional issues that elicit visceral responses. I can I can speak from mm-hmm. personal experience yeah. that, you know, we are ent- we are expected to create a dialogue that is based on logic, on points and counterpoints, but this is an issue that hits so viscerally that touches to the core of my identity and who mm. I am as being created in the image of God that it's very difficult to take a step back and um, think about the way that I'm communicating. If it's effective, will it be received well? Um, and so I think for me, it has been helpful really to just listen to the other side who may hold viewpoints that are different than mine. Um, I'll give an example. I actually did not know that people thought that we were in a post-racial society. Mm. I just, I've never heard that before. (laughs) Everyone I know, I mean, just every single day I have walked this earth, Mm -hmm. like, my ethnicity, the color of my skin, the accent that my parents had, it plays a role in how people treat me. It just never occurred to me that people thought, you know, because we have a black president now, I see a bunch of wealthy minorities, then, you know, problem solved. And so, I mean, I would not have known that people thought that way until I sat down and had a dialogue with them. And if I hadn't heard that, it would have been impossible to, you know, constructively move forward. And so, I mean, same thing about, um, you know, reverse racism and, you know, just pick your, pick your point. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, fundamentally I have found that it is so necessary. It's humbling. It requires patience. It requires, you know, the Holy spirit Mm -hmm. turning hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, but it's, um, you know, so necessary. Step one, um, to really listen to the underside, other side to understand their viewpoint. Mm. Um, and also for me, just um, to base every discussion on scripture. Um, again, I think, you know, so many of our opinions are f- informed by our culture, our experiences, the way things are done in our family, the way things are done in our city and in our state, that um, when we base when we base our dialogue on scripture 
and uh, what our role is as followers of Christ in a broken world, I think it's easy to sort of cut through the chaff um, to really just anchor, anchor every discussion on um, this is what we're obligated to do as followers of Jesus. Have we veered from that obligation? And if so, what can we do to rectify that? So those are sort of um, my points. Um, I've also um, have experienced some disappointment and failed expectations when having conversations about race, especially with people closest to me and people that I've trusted or looked up to. Um, one example actually happened the other day. So I um, started a conversation with my parents about you know the killing of George Floyd and the protests that were happening. And I mainly was curious about how their church was responding because their church is mono-ethnic and largely an immigrant community. And basically what my dad said was, and so this was on Sunday, um, at that point in time, their church still has not really kind of responded um, or even mentioned the current events with their members. And when I heard that, I was, of course, just incredibly disappointed because um, it was, I, th I think it was just like a perfect example of the mindset that I think the larger Asian American immigrant community has as a whole, which is, it doesn't affect me, so why should I care? Mm. Um, but in that moment, as much as I was filled with disappointment and frustration and anger towards my parents and also their church for essentially being complicit in racism, I really had to force myself to take a step back. And like Moses said, take time to process and be in silence and to kind of figure out where my emotions were coming from. Mm -hmm. And after taking that time, I think I realized that I had to really understand and see from where my parents were coming from. So they immigrated to the States 40 years ago and did the whole American dream thing. And to them, all they were focused on was trying to survive as immigrants. And to them, that meant fitting in, assimilating to dominant culture, going by unnoticed, not causing any kind of disruption or attention to themselves, and just simply keeping their heads down and working hard. Hmm. This was their lived experience as immigrants to this country. So I had to realize that I don't have the right to minimize or challenge what their experiences were. But unfortunately, I think what they and also the larger Asian American immigrant community fail to realize is that the rights and opportunities that enable us to succeed and thrive in this country are not only made possible largely by the black community, but also at their expense. Um, and for me, this is something that I had to learn and become aware of through my own personal journey and experiences. Um, but for my parents, they just lack this awareness. And so I think there's just this dissonance in um, education and awareness. Um, so I think this just goes back to what I said earlier, is that people are just on different journeys. And we have to acknowledge everyone's experiences are valid. We're all in different places. Um, but in that moment, instead of dwelling in my disappointment, I really am trying to see it as an opportunity to expand the conversation with my parents, which will hopefully lead to more learning and growth. Hmm. Wow. Tracy, thank you so much for sharing that. That's, that's huge. You know, at these times, these, these conversations around race can also lead to a lot of disappointment, and specifically disappointment from friends and family, community group members, or even our church leadership. How, how do you navigate and hold a space for disappointment, like in a, in a healthy way, an emotionally healthy way, in an honest way. Moses, how, how, do, you, how do you do that? How do you handle the disappointment part? Yeah, I think um, 
what has been effective for me? Um, number one is just, um, I mean, taking everything to God in prayer, um, you know, making a space for silence and meditation and reflection. I, I think it's so critical to have access to spaces where you can express yourself freely. Yeah. Um, you know, I love that. Um, I, I think we were talking about this uh, the other day. Um, I've been a member of this church for about seven years, and I will never forget the way that I felt around uh, the Charleston, the, the events around Charleston mm -hmm. and our church's response to it. Um, it was just, it was so necessary for me in that moment mm. to know that the church that I go to acknowledged the world that we were in and having that space and knowing that, you know, I wasn't wrestling and contemplating and suffering alone was so critical. That happened years ago, but I still remember mm. what the weather was like at Sher Sherith that day. I remember who was with me. I, you know, um, so so in addition to that, I mean, I'm always, you know, so encouraged when members of dominant culture in our church, you know, reach out with a text or yeah. um, a phone call to acknowledge that what is happening is so complex and so um, emotional, but they are aware of it and that they're available um, for support. And so, I mean, those two things really have been so critical in, you know, really just helping myself and some other members of the community just navigate their feelings um, uh, in a healthy way. But also, I mean, I, I sympathize with, um, you know, people that I've had these discussions with. Um, you know, I know a lot of these conversations are kind of truth bombs to, mm -hmm. if you grew up in a certain culture and your perception of Christ is very specific. Um, these conversations that we're having that are deconstructing what you thought to be true about your faith, I have found can be very disorienting mm. for people that are hearing this for the first time. And I think people, there's a fight or flight response that tends to happen yeah. when, um, you know, their world is being rocked, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, and so I, again, just giving them grace and just understanding that, um, I think a lot of change mentally is taking place in this other person right now where they're being forced um, to consider part of their identity in a different way. Yeah. And so um, I think I have a little bit more patience and a little more grace when I consider those things. That's, <clears throat> you know, I think it's so, it's so hard to, to sit and, and hear your story and know that not only does uh, people of color, um, specifically the black community, have to deal with uh, being seen differently, but you have to hold this space for people to like, you know, wake up to some real this reality, and so it's got to be really taxing, like emotionally taxing. And you said a, a, a huge part of your journey has been prayer uh, and patience, and like it sounds like grace. Like you try to extend a ton and ton of grace, um, and I just I just wanted to say that. I just wanted to pause and like hear that and see that. Like I, I see that coming out of you and I think it's really important as we as um, especially dominant culture engages in this conversation that they understand that's what that's what they're going that's what they're having they're asking of their friends to step into that's what they're asking of the other the other people um, asking of the, someone else you know uh, 
to hold, you know, all their stuff, like where they're coming from. And so, you know, getting back to how Tracy began this is that especially for dominant culture, when you come into this conversation and you're having this conversation, you have to, you have to be able to listen really, really well. Sometimes I think listening is more important, especially for dominant culture than anything. So the, one of the ways that the best way to do it is like step in by listening well. And it's not like, you know, call your, call your, um, your friend of color and listen, because sometimes that gets daunting. Mm-hmm. But like start educating yourself, start reading, start following people on social media that can come at a different perspective and you just sit and learn. Sometimes we may find ourselves like, you know, in a, in a conversation where people, or maybe even you, may associate these types of discussions with shame. Uh, for not believing that God is good, how do you guide and encourage people to engage? So this is definitely a, a difficult topic because shame is just so deep and personal. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I would say that there, there may be two general groups of people that this question can apply to. And so I think the first group of people are folks who may have trouble internalizing and fully believing that God is good and in control in the midst of all of this pain and chaos. And I think here we just need to really extend just so much grace and also give them the time, just like Moses said, to to process and to say things like, hey, reaching out and saying, I understand that this is a heavy load that you're carrying. This is incredibly difficult to process, but I'm here for you. I love you. And I'm here to listen whenever you're ready. Yeah. That's so good. And I think there's another group of people who actually may hide behind statements of God is good or God is in control. Um, but I think I, it's important to understand that saying these types of statements, um, it may be a way of um, possibly causing unintended um, harm or um, being dismissive uh, to the pain of other people. And so when we have the conversations about race, I think it's important to remember that, you know, like you said, Dave, we're just really here to listen um, and to see this opportunity to just really sit with other people in their pain, to grieve with them, to mourn with them, and to share the, this burden with them. Yeah, because we can dismiss, like, we, we can easily say, like super Christian-y, Bible-y, cliche things, mm-hmm. though I don't want to discount the scriptures because they are life, right? But we can do, we can, I was even hitting on this on Sunday where we can say those things in a way to where we don't access what's underneath. We don't really actually access the reality of God because we've just veneered a, a, like a cliche, God is good all the time, just God is good. You, you'll probably still be able to say that, but going down into your pain, going down into the fact that if God is in control, then why did this happen? Going down into evil, going down into like evil things coexist right now with God's kingdom and they are both realities and are, and we are on the side of righteousness and justice and we want to see that win. So we will continue to have these conversations, which I think gives us the ability to keep moving forward. So yeah, I would just want to obviously, you know, pastorally double down on that. <laughs> want to say that that is 100% true. So what is it, Moses, what does it look like to debrief on a conversation like in a really healthy way? Like how, how do you have a conversation with someone 
um, how have you had a conversation with someone and like been able to uh, debrief the conversation? How would you follow up? Um, like how would follow up actions play out in this process? Like what would, would love to hear some examples of what this looked like from you and your personal experiences and, and as you've had conversations with people. Right. So um, I think for me, um, I, I might have mentioned this before, but just like find your tribe, have a tribe like a where s- safe place. Exactly. Exactly. Where you can um, decompress and debrief with. Um, and that, that you, we were talking right before we went on on air. I don't know. I've never said that before. <laughs> but anyway, right before we went on, you were saying you had that safe spot and you say things that like can't be repeated on camera. Sorry. I did say that. I'm not saying <laughs> that you should say that again, but that's the safe space that you're talking about. Right. Because, I mean, I do too. I've yeah. said things that I don't want recorded, mm-hmm. you know, because it just, you What'd have you to say? get that stuff out. Well, you know, <laughs> that's just some stuff. I understand. Some stuff. <laughs> I understand. But anyway, so you're saying that we need that safe space. I, I was actually so. talking to a friend uh, today that needed to, me to be a safe space for him to process some stuff that like, I don't know, I need, I need to tell you this stuff. And it's like, I'm holding on to it. I don't know who to talk to. And and I need you to listen and not just completely judge me. Yeah. You know, it's, it's almost, I think there's an irony in that when, I mean, obviously we see everything that's happening on TV where there's violence and um, outrage and destruction of property. I think in a way, a lot of that is driven by um, people who um, have not had that space, Mm. you know, who I think institutions that typically are in place to protect and govern others have not shown up for them in that way. Mm. And um, this is how that they're expressing themselves now. And I think um, if you listen to people tell tell their stories, a lot of them have sought those spaces and a lot of them have attempted to express themselves and decompress in a way that we all deem appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it has not worked out that way. And so anyway, all of that to say, I completely agree with it is essential to find your tribe in order to emotionally to um, in order to emotionally decompress in a healthy way. Yeah. Do you find when you see like things on um, social media and whatever, where uh, police officers or governors or people in authority are listening, like just will listen. Like th- there's been a, that, a lot of that on social media, you know, like that show up, like someone yelling at a police officer, and police officer like, tell me, I want to listen. Do you mm-hmm. find that like compelling? Do you find that like a little too late? Do you find like that's a good step forward? What, what, what comes up for you when you, when you see that? I think it's a little late. Um, there's, I mean, but it is, it's just, it really is good to see, um, those that are in charge, take an interest in participating in the community that they have stewardship over. Um, I think it's so rare that when it does happen, I'm like, Oh, that's, that's very nice. Um, but I mean, a lot of this goes back to, you know, I know we've been talking about this concept of hope. We've been quarantined for the longest and Mm -hmm. how it's almost like essential to our faith um, that we have this hope. I think Paul said in Romans that our present suffering cannot compare to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Right. Like that's right. That type of um, (laughs) expectancy that we have is fundamental to our beliefs. And so 
I feel like what we're even seeing is the absence of that hope. Um, again, just I, I think in order to have sort of a, a healthy functioning um, uh, society, I think people have to have a healthy expectation that the mm. systems in place around them are there to keep them safe, um, provide them with opportunities, give them resources. And I mean, just the, the elimination of, of hope when people don't feel um, that they have those things. I think we see mm. what we're seeing now. And so uh, it's just, again, I, I just, I see the irony because we as Christians, I mean, we know, especially if you've been quarantined, like how important hope is and, um, you know, how destabilizing it is to lose that hope. Mm. Gosh, that's so good. So for dominant culture, it's really important to listen educate yourself through conversations, more importantly, through literature, reading, doing the work um, for, uh, for communities of color to continue to hope and offer grace and, and like have a safe space where you're processing, you're in a group um, where you can, it's, it's, you're, free, you're free to vent, you're free to, and letting people just listen because sometimes it's almost like when you when you squeeze an infected something, the pus has to come out so that blood can fresh oxygenated blood can flow. I'm just trying to give you all a really good picture as we leave because it's just that's what I do. I'm a pastor. That's what I do. Um, that needs to happen. That that stuff needs to come out. So we it, holding that in leads leads to the outrage that we see. Some of it, not all of it. Some of it for sure. It leads to the outrage that we see. So starting the conversations here are really, really crucial. We have to start talking about this. We have to talk about this. You have one other thing? What? Yeah, I just, I just thought of something. <laughs> um, you know, your point that you made about, you know, seeing the police engage um, with uh, people that are protesting. Um, I just, I imagined, you know, Christians responding the same way. And I do think that that is a powerful way for the church to... Um, uh, interact with what's going on in our community right mm. now by responding to those that are upset um, with grace, with um, you're thirsty, here's some water. And so the example yeah. that I have is, um, you know, for my Nigerians, you know, we actually had, um, Nigeria had like a really bloody civil war. Uh, it was like Muslims versus Christians. Um, it was super destructive. In fact, uh, Doctors Without Borders started in Nigeria as a result of our civil wow. war. But, um, you know, something in our, like totally countercultural in Nigeria was for Christians to show kindness to Muslims, give them supplies, share mm -hmm. their land with them. And in the instances where we did have peace, that was what facilitated it because wow. it was so countercultural mm -hmm. and against the modus operandi to share your space with, I mean, your sworn mortal enemy that like it, um, it was such a powerful um, sort of peacemaker. And so I, I almost see so the same parallel here with um, people that are so frustrated and have so much indignation. I, I think if the church could respond in a similar way with compassion and with generosity, there could be a powerful response. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you both for your time. This has been um, so important and so enlightening. Thank you. Um, so... For those that are listening, get after it. Start, start moving. Start 
you know, going toward it. Don't let, I don't know where to start, keep you from starting. Don't let, um, you know, I, I might get it, get it wrong to keep you from starting. Those are all really, really bad false starts. Um, so grace and peace to you. May the peace of Christ be with you as, as you move forward in, in engaging in these conversations. <laughs>